1: Hey, how are you doing, podcats? This is Adam Buxton here, and I am currently staring at my dog friend Rosie, a black Whippet Poodle cross, and she is sniffing at a spot in one of the hedgerows here on the Norfolk farm track where we are walking. Rosie, come on, let's walk up this way. Come on, how about a fly past even? What about that? No, I'm just going for a lope. It's Sunday. It's not flyer past time. Lope past. Don't know if you heard that. Didn't find anything in the hedgerows, I guess. But it's exciting for Rosie because everything is just crazily bushy, exploding with life. It being late June... 2022 anyway shut up buckles and tell the podcast a little bit about podcast number 182 which features a rambling conversation with english writer and cultural historian john higgs here's a few higgs facts for you john currently aged 51 was born in the warwickshire town of rugby grew up in north wales and now lives with his family in brighton on England's south coast. That's for our foreign listeners who perhaps aren't so familiar with the geography of England. John is the author of a couple of idiosyncratic novels and several non-fiction books that offer fresh and frequently strange perspectives on various pivotal events and figures in modern cultural and countercultural history. He's written about the psychologist and psychedelic neuronaut Timothy Leary, art and music pranksters the klf 18th century romantic poet artist and visionary william blake and his new book considers the british psyche through the lens of james bond and the beatles my conversation with john was recorded face to face in the front room of his house in brighton on a rainy afternoon in october of last year 2021 We talked about John's book, The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burned a Million Pounds, published in 2013. One of the people that John has become fascinated by over the years and writes about in connection with some of the ideas behind the KLF is Robert Anton Wilson, who became a key figure in the world of discordianism. Now, we mentioned that word a couple of times in the conversation... And though John explains a little bit about it, I thought it would be worth just giving you a bit more background, in case you're not familiar with it. Discordianism is often described as an invented religion created by a couple of Californian writers in the late 1950s. It was intended to satirise various aspects of human belief systems and encouraged people to break out of the so-called mind tunnels through which we tend to view the world. In the mid-1970s, Robert Anton Wilson and journalist Robert Shea collaborated on the sci-fi novels The Illuminatus Trilogy, which incorporated themes of discordianism and was intended to poke fun at the world of conspiracy theories. Ironically, however... It ended up convincing many people that those theories were true, and later, in the Internet age, encouraged people to disappear down rabbit holes that led to movements like QAnon being taken seriously at the very highest levels of government. For more on Robert Anton Wilson, the Illuminatus Trilogy, and a non-toxic perspective on conspiracy theories in general, I've put a link to an interview John Higgs conducted in 2015 with legendary comic book writer Alan Moore. Anyway, as for my conversation with John, we focused less on conspiracies and more on the weirdness of some of the films and TV shows we grew up enjoying in the 80s, and particularly in the 90s. We also talked about John's book, The Future Starts Here, Adventures in the 21st Century, which regular listeners may have heard me mention once or twice before on the podcast, particularly with reference to how that book highlights the dangers of feeling obliged to talk about the future in exclusively pessimistic terms. By the way, that part of my conversation with John does contain some spoilers for the 2015 film Tomorrowland. I don't think it'll ruin the film for you if you haven't seen it and you are hoping to see it. But if you are concerned, skip ahead five minutes when you hear me first mention the film, and you should be fine. And finally, we also talked about John's latest book, Love and Let Die, Bond, The Beatles, and The British Psyche, which is due to be published in September this year, 2022. Very much looking forward to that. Back at the end with a bit more waffle, but right now with John Higgs. Here we go. (laughs) down chat that's a You've had an interesting career, John. Ah. Do you start out in children's TV? Uh, I started out, I guess, as a,
2: a runner on The Big Breakfast. Did right? you? Yeah, back in the early 90s. Yeah. Uh, and so who was presenting at that point? Oh, it was it was just after the Golden Age. Yeah. Chris Evans had gone, but it was still sort of...
1: Vaughan and Denise Van Outen, was it?
2: Yeah, it was around then, yeah. But I, I was more just sort of in the office doing the post than, uh, you know, anywhere interesting,
1: was it an enjoyable experience?
2: It was It was an eye-opening one. It was a whole bunch of people, the likes of which I'd not really mixed with before.
1: Right.
2: Basically public school boys on cocaine. Mm-hmm. I had no awareness of what this was like or I'd not encountered any of these sort of type of people before. And I couldn't really, I didn't really fit in and I couldn't really get my head around it. And they are all so pleased with themselves about these ideas that they were sort of coming up with. And... I just thought, these are terrible. These are the most obvious, dumb things. But because they were all so, you know, congratulatory and Mm. everyone was like so excited by it all. This is mid-90s.
1: Yeah, mid-90s, yeah. And the TV world in the mid-90s, especially in the UK, was a very odd place. It was very strange, yeah. Uh, It was this whole raft of independent uh, companies that just sort of sprung up. The effects of postmodernism in full swing or at least getting (laughs) getting to be in full swing like and and that stuff from the u.s drifting over as well shows like seinfeld and larry sanders and the simpsons that sort of deconstructionist ethic that that was starting to be assimilated by tv in the uk Uh, certainly we were in the thrall of it definitely it was it was
2: full-on generation x you know at, at their peak and um there was a great energy there, yeah. you know, in, in them sort of early Britpop years and stuff like that. E- mm. Even if a lot of what people were doing doesn't really hold up or, or stand up, and I, I, I sort of loved the way uh, my daughter's generation just shake their heads at it, and the, 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 the whole Edge Lord thing—they oh, come yeah. up this fantastic. Insult just to dismiss sort of the entire 90s where where being edgy was you know hey he's edgy that's that was the thing to
1: to appeal to edge lord that's right i only recently came across that term and i think i came across it because i was thinking of re-watching fight club ah yeah and showing it to one of my sons who hadn't seen it before and uh i said oh yeah have you not seen fight club oh it's worth seeing i said (laughs) having not seen it since it came out yeah and looked online and uh, saw that. There, actually, I looked online after I saw it because I was interested to know, like, uh-huh. what is the legacy of this very odd film? Yeah, yeah. And the, the word edgelord came up quite a bit. Yeah. Because it really is quintessential edgelord <laughs> movie making, isn't it? <laughs> but at the time, we thought it
2: was so good. Um, the Breakfast Club is another one. Right. That, that, um, yes,
1: you talk about that in, yeah, in The Future Starts
2: Here. I do. I do. It was the perfect eye-opening moment for me of, you know, our generation. It was a classic, you know, it was mm. great. Uh, it had Molly Ringwald in it, it had Ali Sheedy in it. And then Generation Z sort of came along and they just looked at it with, like, horror. And it it just makes no sense to their eyes, the way they view the world.
1: While I definitely agree that it is... Beyond cringy to watch now. Yeah. I, I had to watch it through my fingers. And I certainly did think, like, what does this say about our generation? <laughs> but I do remember thinking that, it, that there were certain aspects of it that were jarring at the time. Do you yeah.
2: Know? Yeah. The whole um, Ali Sheedy could only become desirable when she sort of dressed in a very sort of pink sort of way. when
1: she became a
2: girly girl. At the the time, everybody hated that. You know, everybody liked the the dandruff version of her much, much more. Uh, But it's more the, um, is it... Bender, is it Judd Nelson? Um, yeah. Especially scenes like when he's under the table with Molly Ringwald and it's sort of implied that he sort of touches her without her consent.
1: Yeah, no, there's a lot of casual sexual yeah. harassment going on. Yeah, and he's, yeah. Su-
2: he's such a bully that his his
1: tragic backstory, you know, doesn't compensate. I, I really felt, though, that he was a bully because he'd been dealt a bad hand and, and life at home was so shit for him.
2: But in comparison to the nerd character um whose name escapes me now brian, brian i think he was yeah. called brian who it, towards the end is revealed uh, attempted suicide the, the previous week yes because his parents expectations were yeah, so high for yeah him. yeah and he seems to a modern audience to be what the heart of the the story you know should be uh-huh. yeah. yeah
1: that feeling like we're okay the kids are all right we're gonna stand <laughs> up to the terrible grown-ups because when you grow old, your heart dies. Yes, that was, that was very much the lesson that
2: our generation received. And I sort of fully sort of took it on board. Yeah.
1: And what are those forces that make your heart die? as you grow older they are things like well they're compromises aren't they financial pressures giving up on dreams expecting less and all all those things
2: are sort of seen as the norm mm. but they don't have to be no definitely they don't have to be at all
1: who are the people that you admire who buck that trend that are alive today uh who but oh gosh i don't know i mean david lynch flashes
2: into my mind immediately yeah he says, uh,
1: it's a, generally sort of fine artists or or artists of one kind or another i suppose isn't it because they're
2: yeah i guess so people who um you wouldn't think there's an obvious place for them in the world but they just do their stuff regardless and a place sort of builds around them there's, yeah. there's, there's a concept in um ecology of niche creation and the idea is it's not the case that a species will sort of come along and go oh I could do well here there's lots of food and things like that I'll just take that a species sort of comes along and just does his thing and by acting in the world he sort of creates the very environment that he needs to survive Mm -hmm. and it was when I made the decision to attempt to become a full-time writer knowing full well the absurdity of it given all of the business models of writing and all that sort of stuff There was a sort of act of faith that if I just did it, people who read my books would start to appear, and slowly over time I'd sort of build people who would go, oh, that guy's interesting, I'll read his next book, and just enough to support me. You sort of create the niche that you sort of need. It's not like the world was going there a Real need for books by John Higgs. Where are they? You know, anything like that. But if you do them, then the world sort of reacts around you and uh Field of Dreams, isn't it? It's a field of dreams. I mean it's a type If you build of, it, they will come. Yeah. I mean it's always on an edge of, of never quite working out sure. properly. But you know, it's um Yeah. It was at when I turned forty, that was when I made the decision to sort of all right, I'm gonna give it a go because I just had all these books building up in my head right. and um you should never waste your midlife crisis Mm -hmm. right you can do great things with a midlife crisis if you just waste it on like a car you know it's just lack of imagination mine was the decision to know i will write books and attempt to sort of make a living there and the the option seemed to be if i went for it i'd be penniless and if i didn't go for it i'd be bitter Mm. right i'd be bitter going for your heart would die yeah
1: and like penniless certainly beats bitter so i made the decision
2: and that was 10 years ago, and I'm still going.
1: So you know, yeah, so touch wood. And so when you did start writing, I think your first book came out around 2007? Yes, 2006. Yes. I Have America Surrounded, The Life of Timothy Leary. Yeah. Thereafter, you wrote about the KLF, Making Sense of the 20th Century, Future Starts Here. These are some of the books you've written. You've recently mm. written about William Blake. Is there something that you feel your books have in common? Is there an animating interest that started the whole process I think they all fit
2: together I think they all make total sense together but I'm I'm
1: quite prepared for no one else I (laughs) feel as if there is is, but I'm interested to know what you think that is yeah
2: I think so I mean it's I always try to offer some new perspectives I don't try and sort of say hey this is how things are and this is how I see things and there's it seems to to me there seems to be a lot of almost like open goals of just like all these amazing books and stories that no one else seems to bother writing. I, I still can't get over the fact that no one had written about the KLF for 17 years because it is the single most fascinating British music story of, you know, uh, of my lifetime, certainly. And it was just sort of sitting there. And I'd say to um, I know some music writers, and I'd say, oh, I'm writing a book about the KLF. And there was a pause, and they just went, Why? You know, they just couldn't get their heads around why someone would do that. And that happens with a lot of my books. I had it with the Timothy Leary, with things like Watling Street. People go, why are you writing that? Until you've written it, and then people get it, and it's sort of like, oh, why didn't I think of, you know, doing that? It, to the extent that when I say, oh, this is my next book, and if people go, oh, great, I think, oh, that's not good. There's something wrong there. <laughs> I had that with the William Blake. Everyone was
1: like, oh, great, you're writing about William Blake. And I thought, hmm, that's worrying. <laughs> No, a lot of the figures that you're interested in have that, well, they're, they're countercultural a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. And they are people who can be viewed from all sorts of different perspectives and mean a lot of different things to different people. Yeah, I suppose maybe one of the reasons people were bemused by your decision to write a book about the KLF was that in musical terms, yeah, if you just look at the music, yeah. it's fine. Some of it's great. Yeah. But it's not a substantial body of work, really, when you compare it to a lot of other artists. Yeah. What is fascinating is the story and the motivations of Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cauty and what they were up to. How much did you know about that when the music was coming out? I wasn't, I didn't really pay much
2: attention to them when the music was coming out. My thing was mm. sort of more metal and, and paying attention to that sort of world at the time. But then they burnt a the million pounds. Right. And I still remember, it was, there was a big article about it in The Observer, just describing how they'd gone up to the island of Jura with their million pounds and gone to this tiny boathouse just after midnight on the 23rd of August and, you know, set fire to this money and um, couldn't really say why they'd sort of done it. And it sort, just sort of stuck in my craw. You know, it's, it's like if, if you understand something, it's very easy just to sort of move on, you know forget about it and look at the next thing. But when something doesn't make sense, it's a real hint
1: you're missing something. And so your response to that was not to write them off as just nutters, as many people did. Well, I
2: certainly look at the notion that they're just nutters. Yeah. Uh, or just attention-seeking assholes. as I think the it was a bit in the book of discussing whether they're just attention-seeking arseholes. Yeah, we don't dismiss that sort of side of it at all, but it's certainly... Not the whole thing. There's a lot of attention-seeking arseholes out there. Yeah. And they don't really behave like that. They're behaving very sort of differently, I think. Yeah.
1: Because C- I watched a lot of interviews with them at the time. And there's one on an Irish chat show. Oh, yeah.
2: The Gay Burn show. Gay yeah. Byrne, right, yeah. with
1: Bill Drummond talking about it. And he – it's one of the few interviews where he is at least up for directly answering questions about why they burnt the million quid. Yeah, but their audience
2: is so angry. Yeah. They're just furious.
1: But also Bill Drummond doesn't, he he doesn't have completely solid answers for it himself. No, not at all. He's just kind of, well, it seemed like an interesting thing.
2: Yeah. And I mean, when I started writing the book, my assumption was, oh, I'll go and speak to them. Yeah. But the more I got into it and the more, you know, interviews with them that I read, uh, the clearer it became that that led nowhere. You know, they sort of couldn't tell you. It needed a entirely different sort of uh, approach. And because they'd sort of done a tour and gone everywhere and asked for a response to what they were doing, mm-hmm. uh, I thought that sort of gave me permission just to write that book as it was and sort of put it out. And there's my response. Admittedly, it took me 17 years, but I feel justified doing that. There's not many um, stories about living people you do without you know, trying to speak to them or anything like that. But that one
1: seemed reasonable, I think. Did you come to any conclusions? Did you feel differently about it after you'd written it? Yeah, I mean,
2: perhaps six or seven years ago, I sort of made the decision to stop doing talks about the the KLF because um, it was kind of like... That book was taken off more than I expected. Right. And uh, the, the framing that it had was sort of being accepted more and more. And there was a sense that um, my voice was having undue weight because you just want everyone else to chip in and give their takes on it because it's a mystery to explore rather than, you know, a,
1: a maths puzzle to solve. It's one for the ages, though, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's one of the. Uh, I was talking about it to James A. Castor, the comedian. Oh, yeah, excellent. Because a friend of his he'd got into uh, a row about... Actually, they'd both been ranting about what a load of shit a lot of modern art was. Yeah, And yeah. KLF burning a million quid was one of... In fact, I think James mentioned it to his friend. Oh, yeah. Said, what do yeah. you think about that? And the guy just was spluttering with rage. <laughs> Which I totally get mm. as a first response. Yeah, But I did think it was odd because it just seems like it's obvious that there's so much more to it. It's an act... That means so much on so many different levels and makes you think about so many different things. I hmm. thought it was odd to kind of just reject it out of hand as being evidence of how worthless art you, you is. Can, you can totally get a good book out of it. Yeah. But
2: <laughs> going back to that argument with James A. Castro about whether modern art is rubbish, a yeah. uh, recommended practice in the sort of discording world, uh, something Ken Campbell was very big on and
1: Robert Anton Wilson, these are all figures that, that I was going to ask that, you about. It. Yeah, yeah, so for people who don't know about discordianism.
2: It was a 70s sort of pranksterish. It was also like a spoof religion that was also entirely serious. It was a way of being playful with doubt. Yeah. Um, that is really healthy, I think. Even though the the absurdity of it, you know, can be a bit much for for a lot of people, I kind of yeah. like all the sort of absurdity of it. Yeah, and well, a good giving a sort of a good example. One of the things they'd recommend is just um, adopting uh, a different belief every now and again. Mm-hmm. Not to say it's true, but you just sort of try it on and suppose and act as if it's true. And because um, I've got to write a thing in the new year about the mutoid waste company, I'm sort of trying to get my head around that in the art world and where they sort of fit. Mm. I thought I'll just. Try on the idea that all modern art since about 1950 is just worthless, right? It's just awful, and it turned out to be one of those um, belief systems that is very seductive once you put your head in it. It's so sort of, <laughs> it's it, it makes so much sense, and it's you, you're almost loathe to sort of get out of it because it's also intellectual and it uh. Uh, what Blake would call eurism, it's all in that rational sort of thing, but it doesn't go any deeper, it doesn't, uh, you know, affect you on a more profound level than previous art and stuff like that. And it started to make me, things like, I start to really admire video games, just because of how visceral they were, and just quite what an effect they had on you, compared to sort of, you know, the chin stroking in a... Are you a gamer now? I try to. I don't have a lot of time for them, uh, and I do tend to be the more you know single players. Uh, I'm going through the Uncharted's at the moment, and like Tomb Raiders and things like that. Right, and um, they're a bit murdery for me. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm not that desperate to murder people
1: because I was talking about video games with Vic Reeves on my podcast. Oh, excellent. and we yes. both admitted to having an unreasonable prejudice that they were a total waste of time. Yeah. You know, like you play them and you feel guilty, like mm. I just wasted my time. I should have been reading a book or doing something else that would have been more edifying or yeah. uh, educational somehow. And of course, there are so many good things about video games. And as you say, there is the possibility that you can have some something fairly unironic and mm, um, mm. direct. As yes, that experience. visceral thing I was yeah. sort of
2: talking earlier, uh, and sure you can dismiss that as as unnecessary or, or irrelevant. Or it depends what game you're playing. You're, yeah. you're not being improved by it, put it that way. But it is definitely a thing. Yeah. It's missing in a lot of art galleries or things like that. That sort of uh,
1: a, a piece of work having quite
2: a profound effect on you. Yes,
1: um, I went to art school, and I so I was at art school in the very early nineties, and oh yes, it was full on postmodern a lot of the time uh-huh. and lots of sliding signifiers and talking about Derrida and uh, yes and it did drive me nuts partly because I didn't understand a lot of it yeah and partly because it just seemed so obviously a get out for stuff that wasn't very good a lot of the time you would just talk about the theory behind it yeah and people would roll their eyes if you couldn't do the jargon you know it's like oh well you don't understand anyway so <laughs> yeah so I was I was conflicted because on the one hand, I felt excluded by these people who knew all the postmodern jargon. Yeah. But then on the other hand, I liked The Simpsons. I liked (laughs) the idea of taking things apart. And I liked the idea that there was no high art or low art. It was everything was just flattened out. Everything was relative. You know, you don't realize at that point where it's going to lead you. Yes. Yes. You don't realize that it's sort of a dead end. If everything is just as important as everything else, um, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I guess that's a bit of a, a straw man description of
2: postmodernism. Sure. Um, yeah. The, the notion that because there are a lot of different perspectives and you have to try and reconcile them, you know, doesn't mean that they're all sort of so sort all of equally worth worthless or or equally worthy. But I
1: the, suppose the idea of irony, though, was something that. I latched onto and I felt that was really mm. coming through strongly in the nineties. And definitely a lot of, that, that was, that was the generation X thing. That was the sort of the reaction to
2: the, what had come before.
1: Yeah. Because everything before was like, Oh, that's cheesy. Anything straightforward mm. or sentimental or, or direct or anything that might be self-consciously trying to, improve things or teach you yeah. teach you some kind of lesson or other. It was like, no, no, come on. Yeah. We're too cool for that. We're not going to do that.
2: Yeah. I tend to think of it as a, a Lovecraftian view of the world mm-hmm. that, was, that you got in the 20th century. And it's in things like, um, say, Adam Curtis documentaries. Now, yes. Adam, Adam Curtis is great. He talks about a lot of interesting stuff. I'm all for his stuff. But it, he does have that very 20th century view of the world where the individual is this small sort of separate thing and the, the cosmos is incomprehensible and malevolent and scary and it's going to get you. And that's sort of this sort of automatic understanding of how things are. There's a sort of paranoia there. It's quite a dark way of understanding things. And from what I can tell, it's sort of gone for the generation that's raised online, it, you can see, see it makes sense when people raise sort of passively in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. You're sat there, you're passive. All these things going on in front of you, there's nothing you can do. You can't. control You're at the mercy of the cosmic mercy forces. Forces of a huge sort of yeah. you know, yeah, forces that just don't have your best
1: interests at heart. And that was yeah. that's that sort and of strange level of coincidences and strange alignments. Yeah. And
2: whereas if you see yourself as part of the all. Uh, which those raised online do seem to. That goes out the window. There's no separation between sort of viewing everything. It means um, that you suddenly have, have a lot more responsibilities. For your actions. You have to, you know, pay attention to sort of what they do, repercussions, and the whole sort of increase in things like anxiety and mental health problems uh, seems. Highly connected with trying to sort of handle all the sort of uh, extra responsibility of being a responsible part of the whole. Uh, there's been a massive fundamental shift, it seems to me, between the millennials and, and those born and raised in this sort of century. That's always the way, though, isn't it? There's always a sense of it, but... It, it, on occasions there's a there's a real shift i mean from the baby boomers to the generation x to the millennials there was just a gradual sort of shift it wasn't there was nothing fundamentally different about their way they understood the world there they reacted differently they had different priorities and things like that but it all sort of fitted together and i think it's taken people a bit of time to get their head around that there has been a similar sized shift now that we have you know, digital natives sort of right. sort of around and a lot of um the culture war that you get in right-wing newspapers mm-hmm. um there's it's that real sort of sense that something has changed and they don't understand why and they don't understand what it is and they can write you know lengthy op-eds about why it's bad and, and terrible but because they don't really see the world in those terms and you see that rising sort of level of panic almost even though you know the rights they've got you know they've got Their candidate in number ten, they've got an eighty-seat majority. They've got the the hardest and most sort of ideological of Brexit. They've got everything they sort of possibly want. But there's this fear that really it's the end of them. That what we're seeing now is sort of the last lash of the dragon's tail. That there's that sort of that hyper individual sort of way of looking at the world. It's a very different sense of a generation that's more involved. It's like the millennials didn't really vote compared to older people, but like the ones coming through now, they really can't wait to vote, you know. They're, really, yeah. they're sort of really sort of uh, going to be turning up in droves, and
1: I think it's going to be a bit of a shock to a lot of sure. electoral people. One of the things you write about in The Future Starts Here, was it even a friend of yours who decided that he was not going to look at the news? For yes, a year?
2: that's right, yes.
1: Uh, I, f- I found that really interesting. Yeah. Because it throws up so much interesting stuff about to what extent it's productive to be mm-hmm. engaged with things that are happening in areas that you might not necessarily be able to control uh, and yet you know the default feeling for most people i think now is that mm. especially on social media is that you should be involved with these things you should know about these things mm. you have a responsibility to be aware of what's happening in the world and if you can yeah. add your voice to the voices that want to change those things for the better
2: it's it's whether consuming the news is the best way to achieve that it's um, I mean I know as a writer that really what you're supposed to do if you want to be sort of taken seriously is to take the view that things are terrible and we're all doomed and if you take that view you're sort of given a certain credibility or gravitas you're sort of taken seriously uh, because that's what People on the news sort of say, you know, the, the uh, if you use all your, int- your imagination and wit to come up with a brand new perspective on why things are terrible to make so people know that things are sort of doomed, people will treat you well. I'm trying to think, oh, what was that book? I hate the internet. I Jared Kobeck or or something like that. I think it's great. It's a really good book. It's very funny and it's very wise. But he basically, almost forensically, lists everything that's like bad about the internet. And, you you know, you can't argue with him because he's right about all these things. It's everything sort of bad. But the moment you think... Well there you go then the internet's bad right you've you've gone wrong because there is also everything that's good about the internet you know there's people meeting the love of their lives on the internet there's people's lives being changed and people
1: learning and there's all there's a whole side of everything that's sort of good about it so what happened to your mate who um shut himself off from the news then I think he had a much better t- <laughs> much better time of it and he you know because um, it wasn't as simple as like he because obviously certain things are unavoidable. You're going to find... Yeah, I mean, he would say that um,
2: anything he needed to know, it would come from talking to people. Mm -hmm. It's like if you sort of look at, say, last week's newspapers, you're sort of aware of like, wow, I really don't need to know 95% of this. 95% of this is just a waste of my time. And if I spent all that time worrying and fretting about, you know, that that really isn't the sort of best uh, use of my time. Whereas to understand, you know, reading a book on a subject will teach you far more about it than the froth of what's happening in the news. And I think a lot about uh, something um, Barack Obama said, I think, was it 2016? It was something like that. He said, if you could choose any point in history to be born, but it had to be random. You know, you couldn't choose who your parents were, you wouldn't know if you'd be male or female or what colour skin you'd have or whether you'd be gay or straight or rich or poor or anything like that. It was entirely random. If you could choose any points in time to be born... You would choose now. And, you know, if you look at all the statistics of access to healthcare, access to education, childhood poverty, all these sort of things, he's right. He's dead right. You know, you totally would you know, choose now. But it sounds so weird. It sounds so strange that the notion that now is the best point in history to be born when our media thing is like no this is the worst this is the worst it's ever been you know this is and tomorrow will be even worse
1: but now is the worst you know i guess people are skeptical when you put things in positive terms because they worry that it will discourage people from trying to put right the things that are wrong
2: yeah well yes
1: um Make them complacent. Uh, There's there's a big difference between blind optimism and pragmatic
2: optimism. Uh you know, blind optimism ain't gonna work out. That's not you know, just the automatic assumption everything's gonna be fine, just that's not a good move. But sort of making decision to view things from a more optimistic than a pessimistic way, Mm -hmm. just statistically, just the maths of it, is going to have a positive effect because you will come up with all sorts of possible solutions to problems which you know uh, most of which will be awful and most of which will be nonsense compared to if you just assume that we're all doomed and there's nothing you can do
1: you know one of the obvious problems with having that kind of we're all fucked attitude is that it poisons the future or it puts it at a disadvantage the idea that you might be able to imagine Mm. uh, a better future
2: yeah, absolutely. Is
1: a big, important part of making that future happen. Absolutely. If you can't imagine a better future, then sort of, how are you going to sort of build it? Yeah. Um, yeah. And you can see that shift in sci-fi, which I suppose originally, I guess after the Second World War, they were very consciously trying to be positive with their sci-fi and it was
2: exciting yeah Yeah, the future be exciting imagine being in the future that was we
1: will have solved all the problems there'll be flying cars everywhere it's going to look like a really big shopping mall well that came true but (laughs) you know and there were films like 2001 and then shows like star trek and star trek the next generation which i really loved and then it seemed that after star trek the next generation which was all warm like everything about it was warm Mm. all Mm. the colors on the enterprise it was all sort of warm orange red yellow hues and things on the uniforms and everything yeah and it was all very much like we're going to sort this out good kind of um very diverse crew and um a lot of the problems had been sorted and then you get Deep Space Nine, which was much darker, and they're dealing with terrorism and racism much more directly and mm. things like that. It's the, uh, the thing that sums up for me is the no smoking sign on the Bridge of the
2: Enterprise. There's <laughs> a no smoking sign, and there was a huge row about it. I think Gene Roddenberry was being edged out because they spent so much on the first film. Is there a no smoking sign? I think they got made it So the, the director had put it there, yeah. Uh, and Gene Roddenberry had been like, Oh, you don't understand, people are getting better people are improving in the future people are better than they are now people on spaceships wouldn't be smoking you yeah. don't need to put a no smoking sign on the enterprise and of course we know now that you know p- since the early 80s smoking has just collapsed completely mm. and, you know you'd really be surprised to find an ashtray on a spaceship these days people would not be smoking gene <laughs> Roddenberry was in- exactly right but it was that sort of tussle for yeah it was that shift that you're talking about became a point where there was just no positive visions of the future in our culture anywhere and the last one i could find when i went looking for one was like bill and ted because like the future had great water slides that was the best that they could come (laughs) up with that was the the best
1: that they could do well there was a odd film that you referenced towards the beginning of the future starts here which is called tomorrowland Mm. directed by brad bird yeah. who did uh, The Incredibles and uh, Ratatouille. And it starred George Clooney. And it, it was a flop, basically. It yeah. was quite an people expensive... people didn't want it at all. Oh, no. Yeah. It's not a great film, but there's mm. a lot of great things in it. It's an interesting film. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely confused, but he's definitely trying to wrestle with exactly this. Like, if we can't imagine a positive future, then we're in trouble. And the whole plot as confused as it is is an expression of that idea yeah it climaxes with definitely. The, with the villain um, played by Hugh Laurie who has spoiler basically invented a sort of machine I think which is it, it's able to see into the future I'm getting this wrong podcasts but it's something like this somehow they've been able to see into the future they see a big calamity for the human race so they start to trying to warn everyone that time is running out and the earth is going to perish in order to shake them up. Yeah. And to give them a scare, but it has, has the opposite effect. effect, Right. Yeah. And he says at one point, uh, the the probability of widespread annihilation kept going up. The only way to stop it was to show it, to scare people straight because what reasonable human being wouldn't be galvanized by the potential destruction of everything they've ever known or loved. To save civilization, I would show its collapse. But they gobbled it up like a chocolate eclair. They didn't fear their demise. They repackaged it to be enjoyed as video games, TV shows, books and movies. The entire world wholeheartedly embraced the apocalypse and sprinted towards it with gleeful abandon. Hmm. Meanwhile, your earth was crumbling all around you. Yeah. But it is. its I, I recommend it to people who haven't seen it. It's a weird film. Uh, and that speech that I just quoted a little bit from, I, I found this blog post from someone who was saying, "Oh, when Hugh Laurie—this was a negative response to it." He said, oh, "I re- I face palmed when I saw that when oh, Hugh yeah. Laurie gives that speech in Tomorrowland, he's speaking to a global audience of powerless wage slaves who are living in fear and struggling just to survive. I.e., this is the mm. this is the reality of." Um, the audience most people can't afford their own home or education much less build a utopian city telling the average person that it's their fault the world is burning is blaming the victim hmm. so there's also that hmm. response to to those efforts to be positive I yeah suppose. i mean
2: i don't see those two viewpoints as, as contradictory in any way yeah they sort of, i think they fit together quite well yeah, yeah. definitely
1: I'm checking my account at the Memory Bank The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank We're thanking you for banking all your memories I'd like to take out a happy memory
0: thanks The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank Ooh, sorry, but you're very overdrawn I will repay with interest when I get back up on my happy feet The Memory Bank, The Memory Bank we're very sorry, but we're closing your account My what? Where am I? The memory bank. The memory bank. where the nice bank. Would you like to bank
1: with us? There's always so many little details and references, perhaps because we're a similar age, mm-hmm. in your books that are, are really resonant. And one of the things that you mention, maybe even in the future, starts here again. You talk about Johnny Rotten's eyes. Is that in there? Oh, God.
2: When did I mention Johnny Rotten's eyes? Look yeah. At Look at yeah. a
1: picture of Johnny Rotten in 1976. Look into his eyes and you'll see something extraordinary is going that, on. I think that was, that was an argument against pure materialism or something that sort of...
2: It was something like that. I can't remember when I... I,
1: I, I, don't, I don't remember. In what, I didn't write down in what context it came in. But just that line made me think, yeah. Yeah. There is something really extraordinary in there, isn't there? And also, It's, it's the sort of thing that you can't uh, measure. Mm-hmm. and so from a lot of perspectives
2: it's not real some people say well you can't measure it. it's sort of not real and um it really is real isn't it that thing in johnny rotten's eyes you know you cut you can't cut things
1: like that out of your sort of worldview obviously with him it's weird because he's turned into such a different character now in so yeah, many ways it's, qu- it's
2: quite funny the way that uh, for our generation punk was uh, untouchable
1: hmm. it was uh incredibility and in cool it was it was
2: there's no argument it was punk you know uh and again for the the generation that's growing up complaining about edgelords it's just sort of some real sort of <laughs> brexity sort of you know, Johnny Rotten, and Julie Burchill. Yeah, you know, it's, it's old, it's, old it's, fart it's, culture. It's old fart culture and it's embarrassing to them, you know, and that sort of so edgy and so rebellious and, and things like that. But
1: again, I'm sure that's, that's bound to be the way though, isn't it? That's just the natural order of yeah, things. Yeah, it is. It Everything is, it edgy is ends up looking a bit daft. Yeah, definitely,
2: definitely. I mean, it's, it's just interesting to see it. Uh, So it happened so quickly, you know, uh,
1: but as you say, when you look back at those pictures in 1976 and you're able to transport yourself back in some way to the moment when he was like that, when he was staring out in that way and you just thought, whoa, yeah,
2: definitely. Mm.
1: I was trying to think about some of the best things about modern life. Like we've talked about some of them. We've talked about the ways that maybe attitudes are shifting for younger generations Uh, but what about on like a superficial level can you think of some of the things that some of the moments where you think oh this is good modern life's working i think about it every time i use the maps on my phone
2: yes that's right
1: this is good all right this phone is there's lots of bad things about it but this is good. I think it's
2: been quite a buzz to ride the rise of the internet and just see it build slowly and slowly. I remember the first time I got maps up on my phone. I was mm. on a bus. I was in a bus going across London. I was trying to work out where to get off and this thing. And I was looking at this map. And then suddenly this blue dot appeared on this road. And it's this, what's this blue dot? And I realised that it was me that I was being tracked on the, on the map, and suddenly that was, like, mind-blowing. That was the first time that happened. Yeah. That was just just amazing.
1: Rather than staring at the A to Z, I used to cycle around yeah. London the whole time with my A to Z, and if I ever left my A to Z behind, it would be like, now what am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not going to be able to go where I want to go. You have to ask someone. Yeah. Or yeah. phone up and write down the directions.
2: Yeah it's it's just those moments when you just sort of you know you've got all of recorded music there and also you can give it to your children mm-hmm. you get a family spotify thing and you go here you are both my children here is all of recorded music <laughs> and you remember what it was like to be shifting through the the, the bins and you know back of chester market and you're, as a teenager trying
1: to find the, the thing yeah uh, and although it, i'm um, conflicted about that one because i do think i like i like the hunt yeah i suppose so and the feeling of achievement when you track something down in the old days john you'd hear something on the radio or on a on a tv ad or something You're like what was that but if you could go back to that if say someone said i could take away spotify so you can't have spotify how would you react to that fine you'd be all right i really think Mm. i would be all right with it because i genuinely believe that The connection that I had with the music that I was discovering. Yeah. I mean, it's so hard, this, isn't it? Because I was a different person. I was young. Sure. Everything was different. But I do remember so vividly the feeling of elation when I would track these things down, when I would go to Paris and I would find <laughs> that they had these Brian Eno albums that, yeah. that you couldn't get in the UK. Uh-huh. And it would be like,
2: whoa, yeah,
1: so exciting. And then you'd listen to it. And I found a copy of my life in the bush of ghosts in, in New York and tower records that had this, track called quran that was uh, later deleted from further pressings because it was offensive to the muslim community because it had part of the quran in the-
0: and it was like wow this is exciting yeah
1: and that yeah that- you, you, you sell it well you make a good point <laughs> however you know as you say wonderful to be able to just include the children on my Spotify account and off they go on their journeys of discovery. And, you can and watch can their journeys them. of discovery. Yeah. And
2: how, I mean, uh, if anything like my kids, their musical knowledge is encyclopedic right. now. It's just extraordinary. They've just sucked up 50 years of music and uh, worked out what was good and what was of value. And, uh, you know, it's fascinating to see them.
1: Yes. And they're making leaps and connections that I was never able to make. That's mm. that, That's one of the really fun things I think about... Uh, streaming online yeah. music are there things that you return to to prevent you from becoming cynical or becoming dragged down by the negative aspects of modern life
2: well i mean i'm not against being dragged down by the negative aspects of modern life it a talk Recently, a guy came up to me, and again, he was talking about the "the future starts here" book and and just how important it was to him. And I, not really thinking, just said, um, "Oh, yeah, you know, I'd hope to one day write a really sort of um, book that's full of like proper Welsh despair." <laughs> uh, and his his face just sort of fell when I said that. <laughs> I, thought, oh, what I "What have I said?" But my thinking being yeah. that you know, if we get that balance of light and dark back in the culture. Then I can explore all of it, you know It just seems irresponsible just to sort of keep stoking the dark Because when you write something and you put it out there It does have an effect And to some extent, it's, you can't predict what it will be But you are in some way responsible for it mm. And if you write the thing that successfully tips someone into a pit of despair Then that's kind of on you mm. So, yeah, the proper Welsh Despair book is some distance away yet. I mean, I'm writing the book at the moment about the Beatles and James Bond. Wow. Yeah. It's been quite a ride. I don't know if you've seen the latest James Bond film. Like no, that. have you? Yeah. How was it? Uh, yeah, going in without spoilers <laughs> right. is one of the, will be one of the key okay. cinema experiences in your life. Yeah. So go see it soon. But basically, they're they're twins, essentially. They're both born on the same day. They're born on the 5th of October, 1962. It was like a Friday afternoon. Bond and the Beatles. Yeah. The the first Bond film, Doctor No, and the first Beatles record came out on the same day. Hmm. And the Beatles are basically love. And Bond is basically death. And, you know, Freudian thoughts, you know, Eros and Thanatos, these are the two competing drives. Uh, And neither story makes any sense compared to normal entertainment rules. You know, you don't create a film character that's still going strong 60 years later. Many have tried. It doesn't happen. It's just impossible. And no four musicians can do what the Beatles did in eight years. It's just, they're just insane stories. But when you, you put them together, they're kind of, these two different aspects of the, the British psyche playing out on a global stage, they sort of highlight so many different and weird and interesting, well, things like class come up an awful lot in this sort of thing. Yeah. The we, the uh, thing that sort of set me off on it was a thing Hanif Qureshi wrote about how at school he'd been told that the Beatles didn't write their own music because they couldn't, because they were just like some scallys from Liverpool. They hadn't gone to the right schools. There was no way they could sort of do it. It had to be George Martin and Brian Epstein. Had, he was taught this at school. And you could, I could sort of now get how for that generation who had that sort of background did believe that because they'd gone to these schools, they were superior. It just created such cognitive dissidence in, in the, um, in the British establishment by being, you know, just so much better (laughs) and so much more talented, so much more original and so much uh, compared to what anyone else could do. Yeah. The country had to sort of revise how it understood, you know, how, how people were and how it all so just telling these two stories together over this sort of period just keeps throwing up all these um, fascinating insights into Britain also male identity what mm-hmm. it means to be a man because like something like James Bond is he's supposed to be everything that's good about being male but he's also everything that's terrible about being male all, yeah, yeah. all of the well Fleming's toxic sort of stuff is sort of there yeah. but they're sort of put together and sort of brought into the light in a way that strangely If you watch how it changes sort of over time, specifically the past 15 years or so, it is telling you a lot about how we are changing and how we are getting better. Yeah, it's it's sort (laughs) of the start. My God, have you read any? I've never read an actual Goldfinger is fleming. the worst oh, is it <laughs> holy cow just in terms of like racism and, yeah. and and the belief that ian fleming seems to believe that lesbians and lesbians because they were uh, assaulted as young girls but they need a real man and they will cure them and right, that, right. That, he's writing this and and the racism towards korean in that book is just astonishing anyway it's a, a, an example of how much we've changed and how much we are getting better even though we you know don't always see it we don't always recognize it we don't always appreciate it yeah as as, is going from you know ian fleming's books to no time to die is is a good example what do you think john lennon
1: would be like if he were alive today oh it's a very
2: good question he was he was he really was that sort of wounded healer sort Mm. of archetype he's a very strange specific thing and there's a well, you might know about this, um, boarding school syndrome. Mm-hmm. What do you make of boarding school syndrome as a concept out of interest?
1: Uh, I think you can over-egg it. Yeah. But I think there's it, there's got to be a lot that rings true about it. How yeah. could it not be? You put a child through a traumatic experience if they love their parents very much and mm-hmm. they love being at home, as a lot of children do, not mm-hmm. all. And then to suddenly be wrenched out of that and have that relationship completely Erased absolutely because Ian Fleming had that and became just
2: very, very damaged and emotionally stunted individual. But John Lennon, when he was taken from his mother and given to his aunt, also seems to have had a very similar thing, uh, and this had a similar sort of emotional sort of damage in, into his life because it wasn't that his mother lacked love. If you read Julia Baird's book, John Lennon's Sister, you know, mm-hmm. she it's a really lovely count of her mother and she probably needed help and support but you know she certainly loved her children when she could and um, she was a wonderful mother to them but though she didn't lack love she lacked respectability mm-hmm. because of having children out of wedlock after the husband had gone and all this sort of stuff so so then was taken and given to his aunt and it was it's a very similar thing to being sent to boarding school that's sort all of. they talk about it in terms of how It's a mistake to talk in terms of homesickness because it's a much deeper thing than Mm. that. It's closer to grief. You've been sort of exiled. You've been sort of sent away from what you thought was home to a place where there is no love and there is possibly bullying and uh, and, and cold, things like that, and how it affected that. Because, you know, obviously, Paul McCartney lost his mum. She uh, had breast cancer. She died. It was tragic. It affected him. But there's no blame. We understand it, and we understand the impact it had on him. The Lennon thing was much more strange and much more complicated, yeah. Yeah, and as I say, he sort of became very much this damaged, violent, wild thing in Liverpool who tried to become this icon of peace. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, he was always flawed. But the journey in itself is important, is significant, I think. Yeah, so I, I don't know what he'd be, he'd be like now slightly scared
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) he'd be well into the dark web wouldn't he
2: it's the um you know that sort of world of conspiracies out there is so joyless Conspiracies used to be like, oh yeah, Stanley Kubrick like made the the film Landings, and the yeah. the, <laughs> the Atlantis did this, and and the aliens made the pyramids. And they, right. they were sort of wild, and and fun. Uh, they were fun. they were fun. They were really fun. They may have been nonsense. Occasionally, you learn something new from them you know graham hancock would was off searching for atlantis and uh, and he's the one who sort of raised the idea that a lot of bronze age civilizations were on the coast which is underwater now uh-huh. so you have to go there to find them and that's been a positive and sort of useful thing from having all these wild ideas about sort of atlantis but the world of conspiracy is all oh, it's just this paranoia it's just this sort of you're a victim and they're, they're gonna get you and it's just
1: well wasn't that part of discordianism weren't some of those people in there responsible for coming up with the Illuminati uh, conspiracy? Yeah, definitely. As a prank. But I I would, how I see discordianism is it's
2: essentially um, an antidote to all this conspiracy Mm -hmm. world. It sort of teaches you not to believe it. You might be interested in it. You might be entertained by it. You might be knowledgeable about it. You ain't going to fall for it. And at the moment, you're seeing a lot of people falling left, right and centre. And especially, as I said earlier, you know, when people have not been going to the pub and speaking to people face to face, people have been getting sucked into these sort of um, reality tunnels and are struggling and drowning in them. And those who've read Robert Anton Wilson haven't been doing that. It's, it teaches you never to properly believe these things, you know, and that's very valuable sort of, you know, the worth of doubt, Doubt is it's a great thing. we always thought doubt is terrible. Doubt's a superpower. Doubt's a wonderful thing.
1: Yes. There was a thing I wrote down from one of your books where you talk about if you want to be certain about something, buy an encyclopedia. Yeah.
2: and If you want to never be certain, buy two encyclopedias. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think that is maybe the thing that I like so much about your books is that you're all about doubt. And the danger of certainty and the value in considering other perspectives. Yeah. I mean, Blake writes a lot about the side of the brain, which he he refers to as urizen, which is the
2: rational sort of side. And it's a model of the world and how things are. But it's insecure. And Mm -hmm. it has to be proved right it wants other people to see the world in the same way that it does and it will start all sorts of crusades and fights and you just go on twitter and you'll see all these people desperately so their vision is is the correct one but you know this nearly seven billion there was over seven billion people on the planet and you're never going to find someone who sees the world exactly the same way that you do on every level it's, yeah. you're never going to find them It must make your question your worldview It surely it must do you know you have to accept that i must be you know out on quite a few things here and there and i, I don't know what they are because we all have this blind spot and accepting that and being comfortable
1: with it yeah that's the It's that's being the comfortable damage. with it
2: and sort of I feel I'm quite good at being okay about people you know seeing the world very differently to what I do and I'm happy with that I don't expect it to be any. that's just how things are people have all these different sort of perspectives and um, you can learn bits from other people you know cutting them off and calling them them and designate them as the baddies and, and sort of hating them and fighting them yeah you ain't gonna advance or learn from doing that you need to be able to sort of Put your head in other people's spaces. And, and when you get into that fundamentalist route, you can no longer do it. And you're doomed. It's uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson put it as, convictions create convicts. You know, what you believe imprisons you. And Blake would talk about the mind forged manacles. And it's all that sort of, the need to be free of that. Because it ain't going to do you any good. And, as I say, you're only here on this planet for so many decades. And these are unnecessary ways to bind you and make your life just a fraction of, you know, what it could be. So, uh, yeah, totally down for a little bit of doubt.
1: Wait, this is an advert for
0: Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success.
1: Chicks, can I hold this smoke? That's what it is. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was John Higgs talking to me there. Really enjoyed meeting John and getting the chance to talk to him, having enjoyed so many of his books very much over the years. The one that really got me into his stuff is The Future Starts Here, Adventures in the 21st Century, but the KLF book is fantastic as well, as is the William Blake. Well, he's written two on William Blake, I think. William Blake Now, Why He Matters More Than Ever, and William Blake Versus the World, which has uh, just come out in paperback, I think. I also really enjoyed Stranger Than We Can Imagine, Making Sense of the 20th Century, I haven't read the Timothy Leary book that John wrote from 2007, but it's on my list. There's a few links in the description of the podcast to a talk with John conducted by Robin Ince about William Blake. And there's a link to that interview with Alan Moore about Robert Anton Wilson and the Illuminatus trilogy and conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff I have now seen the last James Bond film I found that it was quite controversial amongst some of my friends a few of them liked it some of them really didn't like it uh, but it, it caught me in the right mood and I enjoyed it a lot actually more than The Batman, which we sat around and watched last night as a family here at Castle Buckles. It was fine, but I I think it could have been a little longer. I mean, I don't think three hours is really long enough to properly tell a story about a sad emo guy in a magic costume that repels bullets and explosions. No, it's complicated stuff, and you need... At least four hours, I would say, to deal with that. Also, I think it should have been more darker because I could make out a couple of things in certain scenes. You know, sometimes when you have those dystopian, dark visions of cityscapes, Blade Runner style, what they do is they enable you to actually see what's going on lights etc neon lights that kind of thing to provide more detail in the visuals but uh, luckily they didn't do that in the batman and it was all just murky that was the main thing murky and everyone was sad especially the batman he's very sad speaking of movies We've got links to a film that's been made by a couple of people I know a little bit and like. David Earle, a.k.a. Brian Gittins. Uh, David is an actor-comedian who pops up in some of Ricky Gervais's TV shows. And his friend Rupert Magendi. Anyway, they've made a film called Brian and Charles written by David Earle and Chris Hayward, who both star in the film, along with the very talented Louise Brealey. After dealing with a particularly harsh winter, Brian, an inventor living in rural Wales, decides to lift himself out of a depression by building a robot companion called Charles. Now they actually made a short film called Brian and Charles, and I've put a link to that in the description. When did they do that? 2017. So that was the first incarnation of what has now turned into a feature-length film, a comedy, a quirky comedy, which I haven't seen yet, but I did see the short, liked it very much. So if you're looking for something to go and see at the movies that isn't very dark, four hours long, with no smiling, then I encourage you to go out and support brian and charles okay that's it for this week i think thank you very much indeed to seamus murphy mitchell for his work on this episode thanks to ben Tullo for conversation editing thanks ben thanks seamus thanks to helen green she does the artwork for this podcast thanks to all the people who helped me at acast rosie come on let's head back come on but thanks most of all as ever to you for listening to the whole podcast and getting to this point.
0: Only about a quarter of people. I know I'm not supposed to admit this, but, you know, not everybody listens to the whole
1: podcast. You are part of an elite force, the quartermasters. And I'm very grateful. Hey, would you like a hug? Absolutely, you don't need to have it. It's just a bonus if you're feeling like it would be nice okay here we go i'm leaning in right now i'm leaning in coming over the left shoulder it's happening hey all right look go carefully out there thanks again and for what it's worth i love you bye